what this meant for me uh, as I was kind of gathering my thoughts and how in many ways it's kind of served as uh, or not, not this but the people that I'm going to mention are like markers in my life I don't know I'm sure many of you have read through the Old Testament and uh, as Israel uh, from Abraham to Jacob uh, Joshua crossing uh, the Jordan River how they set up monuments to remind them of what God has done. And uh, as I look back to some of these names that I'm going to mention, I, uh, it just kind of put me in a spirit of thanksgiving. And, uh, a reminder that as I look back, uh, the 17 years that I've been part of Good News, uh, God's faithfulness and how He has always been there, uh, even when I thought and even when I at times accused Him of, where are you? He was always there. He is forever faithful. And I thank God for that. And I, I kind of want to start off by just saying how, as we think about discipleship, and, and one thing that I do want to stress is discipleship has nothing to do with how much you know. Uh, there's probably no better theologian than the devil himself. Um, but that's kind of like where my story begins. Yeah, I, I grew up in the church. I've been around the church since I was like five or six. Most of my life I've been inside this building. Um, Rick Lexby, the Lexbys, uh, Gary Mosbach uh, knew me when my hair was black. When I had a little bit more hair. They saw me go off to the army. They saw me come back from the army. They saw me get married. They saw me have kids. Uh, so there's witnesses here to some of what I'm going to share. And I thank God for them. Um, but again, I, I grew up in the church. Uh, I went to Sunday school. We didn't call it God's kids, but it was the same concept. I learned about God. I learned about Jesus. I knew that God was the creator of this world. There's no one that can tell me different. Even if I couldn't explain it well, I knew. I knew that God was God. I knew a lot of passages of scripture. I used to read my Bible. I used to read books. I even found an old copy probably an original copy or original reproduction of Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It's fallen apart. I kind of keep it as a, as a relic in my little room in the basement. Uh, uh, so I read a lot of good things. But the one thing I discovered um, as I got older, uh, that my life was just a semblance. It was just a facade of, of godliness. It so lacked the power of the gospel. I so lacked the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I grew up here. I knew a lot of things. I read a lot of things. I was well-versed in many ways, in many respects. But my life was empty. I was a liar. I was a man that was controlled by ungodly passions. I hurt a lot of people. I hurt my family. Um, and like most facades... Mine came crumbling down 17 years ago. Um, I found myself empty. I found myself full of shame and guilt for a brief moment. For a brief moment as I, as I prayed and cried out to God. Before I said his name, I, I wondered if suicide would have been an option because I was so ashamed. But I thank God that he quickly took that thought out of my head and showed me. Um, I discovered 
for the very first time, even though I grew up here, that Jesus was my Savior, that Jesus was my Lord, that Jesus was my all in all, that Jesus was all that I was looking for in those things that I was looking for out there uh, in, in my escapades, like the prodigal son. Um, but at the heart of my sin, what I had really discovered was that I had never surrendered to Jesus. I liked the idea of Him as my Savior. I loved that He loved me. I loved John 3.16, but I totally missed the point. And He showed me. And one of the things that I learned was that though the Gospel is about forgiveness, the Gospel is about restoration, the Gospel does free us from addictions. But what I learned was that the Gospel is also about following Jesus. It's about denying yourself. It's about dying to self. It's about taking up your cross. And again, as I've um, reflected this past week, I, I realized that my coming to that conclusion wasn't one that, that, that I came to by myself. I came to that conclusion with key people in my life. And I can't mention them all, but I'm going to mention three. And there's a fourth one, but that fourth one represents more of a unit than a person. And I think it's going to speak to what we're trying to get at this morning. There was three people that really played a very influential role in my life when I, when I arrived at the doors of Good News 17 years ago. Um, I was blessed by these men. I was encouraged. And it helped to lay a foundation that I've been building on since. And the first one is Pastor Wayne, because he's the one that I went to. He, to me, he was like the obvious choice. He's the pastor. He's got to have some answers for me. And I went to this man broken. I went to this man just so full of guilt. And it took about a year and a half of spending time with him, of going through counseling, of him speaking some hard things into my life. I mean, there were times when I was like, man, who does this guy think he is? He doesn't know me like that. And maybe he didn't, but he was speaking to me what was in here. And I realized that right away. But the one thing that really laid a foundation in that relationship was when I went to him that very first day was hope. Because I went there without hope. And I, I thought I had, I had really crossed the line with God. Because I knew he had given me a godly family. He had given me a wife that loves the Lord. And I just trampled over all of that. I had lived a life that if you would, if you would have asked anybody about me, my work, I can tell you with straight up confidence, people would say, Jose is a good guy. And I use that word good guy because a child's sister one time referred to me as Jose is a good guy. The truth was I, I wasn't a good guy. And uh, so when I got there to Wayne, I was just like ready. Like I said, suicide had crossed my mind. Not, but it crossed my mind. And um, he said that you, you probably feel like a man right now that's sitting in a room. Or not even sitting because there's no chair. There's nothing in the room but you and there are no doors, no windows. And you don't know how you're going to get out. But I want you, before we even get started, I want you to know that... If you can picture a door, and as he said that, I'm picturing a door in this room that wasn't there because he did such a beautiful job of, 
painting this picture of a room with no doors, no windows, no nothing. And he goes, I want you to know that that door is Jesus. And that Jesus is your hope. And you're going to get through this. And he's going to restore you. You may not believe it now. You may not feel it now. You may not see how it's going to happen. But just know when you leave here today that there is hope. And his name is Jesus. And I remember walking out still kind of whimpering like a wounded animal. But just feeling a sense of hope. And, you know, we always talk about this is more than just feelings. But let me tell you something. That feeling was like no other feeling I ever felt in my life ever, ever to this day before. For the first time, I had a sense of hope in Jesus. And that kind of began a relationship again that took about a year and a half to undo, to unscramble the junk that I had up here. The second person that played a real, and he's not here today, but Willie Santiago, I didn't know this cat from nowhere. He came up to me and he just said, hey, can we meet? And I'm like, meet where and for what? You know, because uh, at that time, I was also jaded. And just kind of like, meet for what? Like, what does this guy want? And he goes, let's just have some coffee, get to know each other and pray. So I said, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. And we did it. Every, I think it was every Wednesday came over and we talked and we had coffee and he would what I, what I remember most clearly is that he would end the time with before I leave how can I pray for you until we meet next week what can I be praying about and I'll see you next week and, uh, and that just meant so much to me because one of the things that I learned with Willie was one of the first persons after Wayne was about accountability about establishing Christian friendships. And again, I just always loved how we ended our time together. Uh, Just him asking, how can I pray for you? And I know that he did. And that went on for about a year, that uh, our meeting together. And the third person that played a really crucial role in my life, an important role, was someone that's dear to all of us, Bud Hopkins, Dr. Wayne Hopkins, uh, former... Uh, I don't know what the title is, president or just the head of the Moody Theological Seminary uh, back in the day when Joe Stoll was the president, so I think 80s and 90s. And with Bud, I learned how to read the Bible with a listening ear. I learned how to pray with the Bible open in front of me and a blank piece of paper close by because that's something I saw him do. I saw him do it. And he says, this is what we all should be doing. And that relationship lasted for, it's going on over four years now. Uh, My bud's gotten a little older. He doesn't get around as much. But we still communicate by email and occasional phone call. He's been a blessing in my life. And then the final one uh, is two guys. But we represent a unit. Carlos Borges and Frankie Torres. And basically, these guys have represented a continuation of what's been mentioned already. But the one major difference is that there's, uh, there's, a more, there's more of an intentionality of reproducing. And that's something that I began to experience with Bud Hopkins. Many men here and outside of here know that I've, I've had the privilege and the honor of spending time with you and just talking through life. 
and talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a, a Christian man. Uh, but that's something that's really a number one priority in, in, in our relationship, uh, reproducing, carrying out the, the Great Commission. But before I talk a little bit, uh, before I talk about these two guys, uh, I want to say something specific about discipleship and that it takes place in different ways. Yeah, there's sometimes a need for a certain formality. Uh, we're we're going to come across young believers that don't know anything about the Bible. That the only thing they know about God was in God we trust, what the money says, or, or the cuss word that they grew up using. I mean, there's people that just don't know anything, and we need to really get down to the basics. So there is a certain formality. There may be a formality in the type of training and equipping people. But the bottom line, that discipleship, it's not as hard as as, as as it's been made to be. It's not a program. It's a lot simpler than what we've made it made, made it to be. A common denominator in discipleship is first that you have to be a disciple yourself. Okay, um, and so the question is, who has poured into you, or or who are you pouring into? Because we see in the Gospels that Jesus poured into his disciples and in turn he sent them out to make disciples. So it was their turn to begin pouring into others. And the second thing that you need is you need a Bible and you need to pray. And as you read the Bible, you ask yourself these two basic questions that we ask ourselves every week. Uh, We ask ourselves what this passage has revealed about God. What does it say about God? And what does it reveal about me in relation to that revelation of God? It's about getting our thinking right about God. Back to Frankie and Carlos. Basically, that's what we do on a weekly basis. And we also ask each other personal questions. We ask each other tough questions. We confess our sins to one another. We remind each other with God's word. How should we then live? Because that's the goal. How do we live? Because in the end, that's what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about teaching others to obey what Jesus has taught us, isn't it? It's not about teaching about Jesus' teachings. It's about teaching others to obey everything he's commanded. And one of the ways that we've done it is through life transformation groups. It's It's awesome. Uh, It's good because the Bible shows that two are better than one. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And we've been doing this for coming up on ten months. And um, it's been a blessing. It's been through some of the hardest times in our lives. God has been faithful. His word is true. Uh, And our prayer as elders... Our prayer as elders is that we would be able to do a better job of equipping you good news and doing the job of making disciples. But my prayer is also for you to consider this question and that you would prayerfully consider it and answer it. Who's pouring into your life? And whose life are you pouring into? Because see, the call to make disciples is not just of the pastor or the associate or the elders but it's of the body of Jesus Christ. We are all called to make disciples. So I pray that you would consider that question. Uh, And I'm going to turn 
uh, the time over to Carlos. Thank you. He used to get mad at me because I'm not a real, like, full-body hugger. It's just, I just wasn't raised like that, you know. Uh, I wanna, I wanna say thanks first before I even begin. You know, uh, for those of you who don't know, I just lost my mother-in-law a couple months ago. Lost my mom about a month ago, and I wanna tell you all that the church, Good News Bible Church, took care of my family. And uh, even with little Jaden, with his little fainting spell. You know, church took care of my family. You all see I'm a big guy, and there were several days and weeks where we didn't even have to cook because the church was hooking it up. So I want to thank you all for that. I love my church family, uh, and I just uh, praise God for you all. I want to get right into our, 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 uh, our passage today. If you want to open your Bibles, go on ahead. I'll start setting it up with context. But we're looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. At this time, uh, Jesus is already resurrected. He's seen by uh, two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And when they see Jesus, Jesus told them, hey, have the brothers meet me. Uh, That's the phrase he used, too. He said, have the brothers meet me uh, in Galilee, where I told them before in Matthew 26. And so after three years of hanging out with his disciples, this is that climax moment. This is that big moment. But one thing I want to say in terms of context, too, the, the Great Commission is not the beginning of discipleship in the Bible. It's not the first time uh, discipleship starts or begins. Uh, we have a lot of examples in the Old Testament of discipleship. We have Elijah discipling Elisha in Second Kings on how to be a prophet of God. Uh, we have Deuteronomy, which is filled with... Uh, ideas for parents to train their kids. We're talking about putting up visuals on the doors and the gates, putting stuff on their body, like for real. (laughs) Like really training them, like making sure they remember. And so we have discipleship in that. Even right before Jesus came, we have John, who had many disciples and baptized them in a baptism of repentance. And then we even have the so-called villains of the Bible, the Pharisees, who also had many disciples. This was, this was part of the Hebrew culture. So the Great Commission is actually just an ordinary admission that tells us what God's been doing all along. This is what he does. This is his niche. He pursues people who are lost and don't know him, and he reaches out and he saves them, and he makes them followers of himself. This is what he does. He kind of does everything else to do that. That's his thing. So for us, the Great Commission is an amazing mission because it's mimicking exactly what God does. That's what he does. That's his thing. It's the reason that we were transformed. We were transformed away from something and, and taken away from sin, but we're also transformed to something. And it's the reason why we're sent. What does he send us to do? That is our mission. Our mission is to make disciples, just like he's been doing all along. Uh, when we say the word disciple, I want to talk a little bit about that word because it's, uh, it's a complicated word. And what I mean by it's complicated is because sometimes we think a disciple is just someone who learns or, or knows the lingo. 
You know, we get fooled by that. But that's not, that's only part of it, the learning part. Or we think it's someone who believes, who assents to a, a certain set. We say as long as they believe these bullet points, then, you know, they're good to go. But the idea of a disciple is the belief and the learning are joined together. And this idea that what I believe and what I'm learning are continuous. So one of the ways you know you're a disciple of God is not that you made a decision or you raised your hand one time in Sunday school, but it's in a continual lifestyle of following Jesus. So that's what a disciple is. So when we're talking about making disciples, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Let's look at the text. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you notice that he told them to meet him in Galilee and they were there? Three, four day trip, hot, tiring, not necessarily convenient. He had already appeared to him in Jerusalem. So I know if I was a disciple, I'd be like, why is he making me walk this, this space? He, he could have talked to me in Jerusalem. Uh, we were just there. But we see that the disciples are available to their master. You know, the disciples uh, are not always given uh, the best rap, right? They were slow to comprehend spiritual things. Uh, they said some crazy things. Uh, they had some weird, like, competition things going on that we hear about. Uh, I do like how they're honest and they kind of talk about it, though, right? So we see that the disciples did meet them there. They were available. Another thing we see is when they first see him, and this is in... Uh, Verse 17, when they first see him, they worshiped him. And they still worshiped him, even though they had seen him a couple times. So they had a worshipful, a worship position, a position of worship. But it also said that some doubted. And the reason for this is I think it's not only the 11 there, but because he says the brothers, and he doesn't necessarily isolate the 11 disciples, uh, because, you know, Judas already had committed what he did. I believe that this might be the 500. The 500 that it later talks about in Acts, who saw what God did. So I believe that this is most of his disciples at that time. So some of them may have doubted because they hadn't seen him before. They hadn't seen him resurrected. They saw him die, and now he's there again. So some of them doubted. But even so, we know that before that, there was a position of worship. So one thing I want to mention about the disciples is that they were available and they were in a position of worship. When you think about availability, I work at a school. There's some really, uh, some really concrete things about school. One number one, you cannot teach a kid who's absent. He's not there. Now, you also cannot teach a kid who's there who's acting absent. Some, some of the teachers were like, yeah, don't break your neck, teachers. Some of you all really, you know, you really got in on that. Now, I want to tell you this about the disciples. They were there. They were available. Some of us can't say that. They were at his feet, listening, 
learning. They were walking with him. They had sleepovers for a long time. Okay? They were listening. They ate with him. They were available. At a moment's notice. You know, you listen to the alls in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven on earth. Uh, All nations. I'll be with you always. All that I've commanded. Because of who Jesus is, that, that, that kind of ties into how our availability should be. We should always be ready. We also see uh, their position of worship. One thing that we can say about the disciples is that in many ways they were very passionate. We might not necessarily feel they're talented, but they're extremely passionate. They were filled with God. And Toby Mack has a phrase that he says when he, uh, that he talks about when he talks about worship is supposed to be a living sacrifice. And this, the problem with a living sacrifice, though, is it keeps moving off the altar. It keeps getting off. And so we need to make sure that if we're uh, supposed to be living a life of worship, that we stay where we're supposed to stay. We stay in that position. I remember when I was younger... Uh, some of the some of the older people in the church would say, you know, I'm starting to plan to read the Bible uh, through, uh, for a year. You know, read the Bible in a year. And I was always so impressed with that because, you know, the Bible's fat. So I was like, wow, that's amazing. So then I got older and I became a math teacher. And it was about a year ago. I was like, let me see this math. Let me see how much it takes. So and then I did some math and did some research. You know, it only takes 12 minutes a day. And I'm not impressed anymore. <laughs> Yo, 12 minutes is half an office episode. And some of you all seen them seasons more than once. Our standard for availability is so low. Our position of worship, our standard for it is so low. Reading through the Bible one day is not a pat on the back. It's just not. And I say that really in a real sad way. Lack of prayer, lack of fasting. We need to move. Jesus made disciples. The number one reason he made disciples, because he himself was the ultimate disciple. So as our own discipleship grows, our own following, then we are able to make disciples just like Jesus did. So I want to talk to you about the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, we have a command. We also have a method. And we also have a promise. The command is to make disciples. And we, and we just talked about what you need to be in order to be a disciple. You need to be available. You need to be in a position of worship. And lastly, you need to be submissive, which we see that in their obedience. Now let's talk about the Great Commission as a method. A living sermon, like Jesus, who was with them for three years, a living sermon is always better than the one I'm doing right now, which is a spoken sermon. A living sermon is so much more powerful. So the method of the Great Commission is to make disciples by going baptizing and teaching. You hear that in there, don't you? It says 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So how do we go? How do we go? Some of you all say, well, when I walk out of here, I'm going home. So you know how to go. Uh, Little kids know how to go. Everyone knows how to go. Why am I emphasizing this? Because a lot of people are confused about what the word go means. You've been going your whole life. So when God tells you to go, you're like, let's think about this. No. You don't have to think in man's statue for this, guys. Go. Now someone says, well, where do I go? Well, let's read that Bible. Let's pray. And he'll tell you where to go. Don't wait for me to tell you. I don't know you like that. I might tell you to stay in your room. You know, I don't know. I don't know where you need to go. But God, if you have a relationship with him and you follow him, he will tell you where to go. Again, the availability, the position of worship, the submission. And then he tells you where to go. And in your going, even if he's telling you to stay, even in staying, wherever you're staying, you're going there. You're there. We make disciples by going, and then we make disciples by baptizing. It's inferred that there's been a decision that's been made to follow Christ. When someone is baptized, that's their public confession, a profession, I'm sorry, of their faith. So when we lead people to the Lord, then we baptize them to make that public profession of faith. So the Great Commission is not just all of us baptizing and discipling ourselves. and No, no, it's about going to all nations. All the nations are not here. Some of us need to go. And you know you needed to go. You keep coming here. So practically, how did, you know, how did, Jesus, uh, how did Jesus do it? What was his method? What was his method? I want to tell you that his method was life on life. Life on life. He was with them. You know, in Mark 3, uh, 14, he says... He chose them so that he would be with them. In, uh, in John chapter 1, we, we hear that the word became flesh. Jesus came, and then he made his dwelling among us. You know that word dwelling means tabernacle. He tabernacle. Think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That was the moving tent that had the presence of God. That's what he did with us, with his disciples. We're supposed to mimic that. Not only is Jesus the command... And the empower the person that empowers us to fulfill the command, he's also the method that we use. So I'm going to rattle off some things here to comment about Jesus' method. We hear that Jesus gave himself to provide salvation from sin. We then have to give ourselves so that people have the opportunity to hear a way to be saved from their sin. Jesus was on business on his father's business from the jump. We hear about 12-year-old Jesus. So kids, I'm talking to you. 12-year-old Jesus, when they asked him, you know, what are you doing? He was, he was left behind. What are you doing? He said, didn't you know I was in my father's house? I like that answer. Sometimes I say that answer even when that's not the question. I just say that. People like, it's impressive. And another translation, another translation for that is, didn't you know I'll be about my father's business? We need to be about our father's business even when they're little. 
You know when a kid comes to the Lord, you know he doesn't, they don't receive a tiny, puny Holy Spirit. They don't. You won't find that in Scripture. Uh, I remember being in seventh grade and the leader said, Carlos, do you understand this? This was at the boys and girls, the Christian boys and girls club I grew up in. They said, you understand this? I said, yeah. They said, why don't you teach it to some third graders? I'm like, have you seen them kids? You know, one of them was my brother. I was like, no. (laughs) You know, I knew these kids. But from the jump, even at a young age, being able to teach all that God had taught me. Jesus sowed seed. He chose people. Jesus chose to transform teachable, rather normal people. Think about our choices. Think about who we're choosing to look at, to invest in. Jesus proportioned his life to to those who he wanted to train. That means Jesus' life was not situated by by what he wanted to do in terms of how we kind of figure out our day by what we wanted to do. But what he wanted to do was based on what he needed to do in his disciples and how he was training them. He proportioned himself correctly. Some of us, there's no time in our life to disciple. And then we don't disciple. Uh, That's called congruence in math. Yes, that's what equals. If you don't set it up, then it won't happen. So we have to proportion ourselves correctly. Why? Because that's how Jesus did it. Not only is he empowering it, not only is he empowering it, he is also providing the method. Jesus helped the multitude, but he focused on the few. If you just continually think about the multitude, it can be overwhelming. But, we, when, but when we focus on the few, knowing that as we focus on the few, who are going to focus on the few, who are going to focus on the few, we realize that we now have a method to reach all the nations. Jesus remained close to them. Why? Because he was their curriculum. He was their curriculum. He was teaching them how to be him. And we need to teach people how to be us as we're being him. Jesus spent more time with them as the ministry grew. You know, as Jesus in the Gospels gets, gets more and more popular, he spends more and more time with the disciples. You know, some of us, if we got a couple people willing to listen, we'll be like, <laughs> I got a bunch of fans. I got followers on, you know. But Jesus, he spent more time doing what he, what he knew he needed to do, even as the ministry grew. Jesus required his followers to be obedient and loyal. And we see that in 2 Timothy as well, when Paul tells Timothy uh, that he has to find faithful men to entrust what he's been entrusted with. So we need to hold that standard up. I know a guy who, when he has his discipleship class, he makes it uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning at his house. That guy doesn't even like getting up in the morning. You know why he's doing it? Just to see if they would be loyal, faithful, obedient, and come out. So he annoys himself to just to check that. Isn't that crazy? He's a good disciple maker, though. Jesus spent, uh, Jesus spent a lot of time with spiritual immaturity. He didn't expect them to uh, know everything. He was loving and merciful in that. He urged his followers to commit to himself. We need to urge followers to commit to Jesus. He gave sacrificially. He taught them to pray. Not only in actually teaching them a prayer and a model, but if you notice, there's many times he goes away and prays. They saw that. But they wrote that down. They saw that. 
Jesus taught them to respond to him. He demonstrated love. He spoke to them about the scriptures. He exhibited. He showed. He trained them to go. If you remember, he sends them out in groups. And then they come back and he gives them feedback. He says, shakes them up. Sends them out again. Jesus told them about the enemy. He prepared them for the attacks to come. So guys, we do what Jesus did. If Jesus, the Son of God, spent three years with his disciples consistently and constantly, so how can we really expect the church building in just a few hours on a Sunday to match that? That's not good math. I didn't write that down. Uh, I just thought of that. Jesus was always with them. He was always with them. And when he wasn't, he was praying. But he did. Last thing we have in the Great Commission besides the command and sorry, and the method is we also have the promise. And let's read that because it's, it's a good promise. Verse 20. Second part. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. The foundational statement that begins the Great Commission is in verse 18, where he says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then he finishes saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. We need to realize who we have with us. When uh, in the Old Testament, in order to have the power of God, God would kind of come down. When Jesus was around earth, to be with Jesus was to be with the actual physical Jesus. Now how do people get to be with Jesus? By becoming disciples. So Jesus' Jesus's, uh, presence with us, it empowers us, it confronts us, and it guides us. In conclusion, guys, the Great Commission is a command. It's a, it's a call to a method. And it's also a promise. The command is to make disciples of Jesus. The method is the ways of Jesus. And the promise is Jesus himself. And if you heard Jesus, all you heard was Jesus, then that's right. (laughs) That's right. There's no other way. When I think about the men who discipled me, and I was discipled through a Westtown Baptist Church, uh, and also through Inner City Impact, through men who were there, When I think about them, I think about their sacrifice. You know, to have me in their home, eating their food, the gas money. You know, as I drive my daughter around and stuff, I realize, man, this is a lot of work. And they just did that all the time. They spent countless hours with me, hugging me. I had a baby brother die when I was 13, and they were there for me. They got on me. (laughs) One time... One time they, uh, I went to one of my uh, disciples' house, a guy named Dave Woodier, and he said, Carlos, in my house from uh, uh, 8 to 9 is reading time. So I was like, okay. So he gave me a book to read, and I didn't read it. I just dumped through the pages and just thought about sports probably, right? So he comes back, and I guess this is a book he had read like a million times. He said, well, what's the book about? What's your response? And then I had him, oh, I hadn't read it. I think you were going to check me. So then he made me stay an hour up later and read the thing, read the book. 
Isn't that weird? I remember that. And the last thing I want to mention is my disciple has taught me that the greatest sin is thinking that I can manage my life without God, that I can follow my own path. Many of us have known for years what we should be doing and haven't done it. We don't need more sermons. We need more obedience. Don't be preoccupied. Don't ignore the command. It's not a calling. Callings are confusing. Someone can break up with you and your whole calling changes. You say, I'm going to Memphis now. It's not a calling. It's a command. It's imperative. Commands are clear and direct. So we're supposed to live our lives chasing after God because he chased after us. That's what he's done. That's what he always done. Do not worship your privacy. Don't worship your own time. Make sure that we proportion our lives correctly according to the Great Commission. As the band comes up and spirits, uh, our prayer counselors are here, feel free to... I, don't want, I didn't want to, 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 to say this and, and it be convicting and things like that. I want it to be a call to obedience. So one thing I thought in terms of a clear application is to have a spiritual conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus this week and talk to somebody you're either pouring into or someone who's pouring into you about it. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you ordinarily do and how you give us the amazing ability to be a part of that. God, I pray that we would not leave here without a distinct feel for how we should obey you, that you would have us to listen to you, and then after listening, Lord, that we would confess how we fall short of that. But then, Lord, we would praise you because you do forgive us. And then lastly, Lord, we would repent from our disobedience and our lack of doing things, and that we would obey you. So, Lord, we thank you for who you are and how you make things clear. In Jesus' name, amen.